Well, here in Acts 5, we've got the miserable story of Ananias and Sapphira. And yet on first blush, it, it seems God is pretty hard here in, in how he deals with them. Um, you know, they, they sell this land and they keep back part of the price. And they're obviously trying to copy what happened in chapter 4, verses 36 and 37, where Barnabas... Uh, sells land and brings the money, lays it at the apostles' feet, and I guess everybody thought, ah, good, good guy, you know, what a, what a believer. And they wanted the same, the same adulation. And spiritual pride is so obnoxious to God, and that is really why they were killed. There were other people who had lied and exaggerated and the rest of it, and uh, I guess God didn't smite them down. But these people were smitten down because of spiritual pride. We want to appear like Brother Barnabas, and have everybody thinking that we are spiritually so wonderful, and that is so obnoxious to God. Now, Verse uh, 4, chapter 5, Peter says to them, While it remained, was it, was it not yours? Was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own power? Now he uses this word exousia for power. And let's just uh, follow that through uh, a little bit. The implication is that that money was yours and was not God's, and you had the choice to give that to God or not. It was under your own power. It was yours, your own. And yet, in another sense, of course, everything that we have is is God's, and yet Peter seems to reason as if, no, whilst it was yours, it was yours. And it was under your power, your exousia. All power, or exousia, in any part of heaven or, or earth has now been given to the Lord Jesus. That's Matthew 28:18. And yet, bring another verse into play here. In the parable, he gave authority, or exousia, same word, to his servants. And when he comes again, he's going to judge us for how we've used that exousia, that power, that authority. It's Mark 13:34. So then, he has delegated to us his wealth. This is you know, the point of the parable, that the master gives all his wealth to his servants. There's a, an element of unreality there, as there is in all the parables, to try to signpost to us the significance that he has given us all that he's got. Now, we are to give that back to him, but until we do that, it is in that sense ours. Now, this is a scary thought, that actually all that we have, and we all have something, there's no good thinking this applies just to the wealthy, the financially wealthy. This applies to us all in one way or another. We have this power. We have this exousia. We have this authority that has been delegated to us. And we have it. And for the moment, that is genuinely ours. And the point is that we are to give that back to, to the Lord. And so generosity is not, in a sense, generosity is only giving back what you were given. Because all power was given to the Lord, and he, in the parable, divided up that power, that authority, amongst his servants, and is coming back to judge us to see how we've got on with it. And really, all you can, <clears throat> all you can do with it is to give it back to him. And this power, or this authority, is not only in terms of financial wealth. We would be quite mistaken to, to read this incident as just a warning to the rich. It's not that. It's about the use of power, exousia, authority. 
And you have that idea again in, <clears throat> in some of the Bible teaching about forgiveness. That when someone sins against you, and that every single one of us have got people who are in our debt terribly because of poor behavior, etc., we are to forgive them because that is the power that has been given us from God. Now Peter says to them, uh, verse 3, he says, uh, Satan has filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. Everything that Peter says and writes, his recorded speech, his letters, uh, etc., is shot through with allusion to his own failures. And we've made this point time and time again in studies on uh, the letters of Peter and in uh, chapter 2 of Acts and chapters 3 and 4. All the way through this is happening. And here the allusion is to Luke 22, 31, 32, when Jesus says that he knows that Satan has desired to have Peter. And he's prayed for Peter. But the point is that in the end, although Jesus prayed for Peter, in a sense in the short term, Peter gave in because he denied the Lord. And he gave in to the pressure of the Jewish uh, Satan upon him. And he said, no, I, I don't know him. Uh, I curse him. I, I don't know who he is. And so Peter is saying, look, I also fell for Satan, as it were. I fell into the power of the adversary, and you have done the same. But you didn't pull out of it, you didn't repent, as, as Peter did. And you notice, incidentally, that he, he parallels Satan has filled your heart with the Holy Spirit, with you have conceived this thing in your heart, verse 4. So the orthodox idea of Satan is rather shot down there, because sin is conceived, it begins within the human mind. It's been pointed out that Satan filling the heart, Satan filled my heart, uh, and that's why I sinned, was a common phrase used in first century Judaism to explain and almost to excuse human sin. If you want the references, you can, uh, you can look at my commentary on, on Acts. So then, Satan filling the heart was a common phrase that they used. Why did you do this? Ah, Satan filled my heart. You know, I, I'm a puppet. And that's the significance of the way that Peter goes on to say, verse 4, you conceive this thing in your own heart, and therefore you are responsible, and therefore you are going to be judged. So he's really cutting in there against the usual idea of Satan, that we are just victims, uh, we're just manipulated by this Satan who dabbles with our mind, and he says, look, no, the real Satan is in fact not who and how you think. Sin is conceived within the human heart and therefore it is your fault and you are therefore liable to judgment. And one basic outcome of our rejection of the idea that Satan is a personal being who is responsible for human sin, one basic outcome of that is that we must take responsibility for our behavior, and also, of course, to recognize that we are responsible for human sin, that we are responsible, absolutely, for all our failure, and that the real arena of spiritual conflict is within the human heart, and not uh, somewhere up in, up in heaven, as it were. So then, they are smitten down, 
And you could, as I say, argue this is pretty, pretty tough, that, okay, they wanted to be generous. They wanted to give their money. And they did give their money. And that was more than a lot of people probably did. They didn't sell their property and give it to the Lord. But these people did that, and, okay, they didn't give all of it, but they probably gave a fair sum of it, because otherwise it wouldn't have seemed uh, credible. And then they get killed, because they, well, they exaggerated a bit. They uh, didn't quite give the complete story. You know, you and I are dealing with people doing that all the time. And these people are smitten down. Well, as I started by saying, God hates spiritual pride. He absolutely does. We are to take the lowest seat at the, at the table within the Ecclesia of God, recognizing that we are really the least. Uh, and any seeking for accolades and praise of people, acceptance of from our brethren uh, because of our spirituality this is absolutely obnoxious to God let's get that really clear and yet despite this apparently you know, to the sort of the outside view this sort of very hard behavior of God in, in this incident verse 12 verse 14 believers were the more added to the Lord I think the harder side of God attracts you have a number of passages in Ezekiel and in Isaiah which talk about when God judges the earth, then men shall know him. And in Revelation you have this a couple of times, that his judgments will be made manifest in the earth, and people will believe. Paul says to the Corinthians, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, and he's talking about the terror of rejection at the last day, he says, Therefore we persuade men. So you can see that he really um, is saying that the reality of the future that we might miss and the condemnation which there will be for some, it's not negative psychology, it's not trying to spook people and scare people but it is simply true that people will be condemned at the last day and I think these passages are saying and that sort of gets us real the fact that there is no third way the fact that our ultimate destiny is to appear before the judgment seat of Jesus and exit one of two ways to the right or to the left the fact that there is no third way the fact that there is no purgatory this I think encourages us to sort of get intense and to get real about spiritual life that really in the the whole stream of decisions and choices which we have every day hour by hour we are to decide for the Lord and I think as you get older you realize and perceive this that really all the decisions that we have in some way or another come down to for God or not for God and it's as simple as that so this demanding side of God, this harder side of God, is, I think, what uh, attracts, what, what in fact motivates us. If, in fact, we're all going to get saved anyway, well, you know, why bother? And if, well, there's going to be a purgatory, there's going to be uh, a third way where you suffer for a bit of the Day of Judgment, but then you, like, you all get in in the end, um, why? I mean, why make the election in this life? Why make that conscious choice? But the reality is that it is right or left, and that the essence of that decision is right now. 
And yet, <clears throat> we should, of course, on the other hand, realize every moment, really, that we live, that we are living by God's grace. And that shows, I think, in our attitude to, to others. And you, you see that, really, in, the, in, in how, they, how, how they preach. And when they come and get hold of them, in verse 28, they say, Didn't we straightly command you that you should not teach in this name? And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with, with your doctrine. Why have you done this? And Peter replies and says, 29, We ought to obey God rather than men. And God raised Jesus, whom you slew, Verse 31, And him has God exalted to be a prince and a saviour, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. 32, And we are witnesses of these things. So, preaching or witnessing is a sort of a, a natural reaction. When they say, why are you doing this? You mustn't do this. They say, well, we can't, but do it. It's a bit like saying that sneezing is a sin well I'm sorry but I can't help it or blinking is a sin, I, I can't help it it's how it is sir and that is exactly the, the situation which, uh, which they were in here and it's the position that we're in that if really we believe that Jesus died and rose again and has been exalted to give forgiveness and repentance then we cannot but share that good news with other people and this is why the, the shyest of people, the most reserved of people, when they engage with the Lord Jesus, and when they are convicted of their own forgiveness and their own salvation, they become quite amazing witnesses. And so it is for each of us. We wonder why we we are shy to witness, and we beat ourselves up maybe that I don't put a word in for the Lord as I should. Well, do we really believe? Because if you do, then somehow it naturally will flow out of you. There's something, however, very wonderful here in the list of things that he, he reels off. Uh, you killed Jesus, God raised him, God exalted him to be a prince and a saviour. He's now in heaven, 31, <clears throat> to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And Peter says, and we are witnesses of that. I'm a witness of that. Well, how exactly was Peter a witness of the fact that God had exalted Jesus into heaven? Yes, he was a witness of the death and the resurrection of the Lord, yes, but a witness that Jesus was now in heaven? I mean, had he been up there and had a, checked it out, come back to earth and said, yep, I was there, I saw it? No. In what sense is Peter so utterly persuaded that he is a witness of this? Well, he's a witness of it because he, of all people, had felt that forgiveness of sin which was enabled by the Lord's resurrection and his exaltation to heaven. And so that's why he can say, I really know that Jesus is now in heaven. I really know that Jesus was resurrected. And we who did not literally see the risen Lord, we also can just as strongly be witnesses of his resurrection and exaltation if we have known his forgiveness now this is a, an amazing thought that we know that he is in heaven because we know that we have been forgiven I'd like to uh, 
just also note 31 that he was exalted to give repentance and forgiveness not just to get forgiveness but to give repentance this suggests that his exaltation has enabled him now to work on human hearts to bring people even to repentance if you look back at chapter 3 25 26 Peter quotes the promises to Abraham that in your seed in Christ will all the peoples of the earth be blessed God sent his son Jesus raised up his son Jesus and sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from his sins and we observed when we did the study on Acts 3 that that Greek word translated to turn away is the same word used by Jesus to Peter when he says put up your sword into its sheath put up, turn away your sword and in that sense Jesus saved Peter from sinning so the blessing which was promised to Abraham was that his seed would live forever have eternal life, eternal inheritance of the kingdom of God on earth and by baptism into Jesus we become part of that seed and that becomes true of us but if you and I are going to live forever <clears throat> there must also be therefore because we're sinners and sin brings death there must also be the forgiveness of sin and that's why there's a link between blessing and forgiveness and the blessing of which was promised to Abraham is the forgiveness of sin but it's not only forgiveness of sin it is turning us away from sin the new covenant which was the promises made to Abraham according to Galatians and Romans the new covenant is expanded upon a bit in Jeremiah 31 where God says you know I gave you the old covenant a set of laws and you just didn't keep them so okay I'll make a new covenant with you when I will write my law in your hearts and Hebrews says that those words apply to us who are today under the new covenant so then the new covenant the blessings involve forgiveness and involve God's word being written on our hearts us being turned away from sin and again you've got an extension of the idea here in the chapter 5 there verse 31 that he has been exalted to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins so God wants us to repent and God is working in your life and mine to lead us to repentance again Paul says in Romans the goodness of God, the grace of God leads us to repentance it's not as if God says well look you've sinned, if you want to repent I'll forgive you he, his grace is even beyond that he even works in human minds to bring about repentance or to try to he even did this I believe with Pharaoh and he does it, he tries to do it with all sorts of people so not only should we be eager to forgive as God is so eager to forgive but we should be eager to try to help people to repentance and we of course ourselves are being helped to that repentance and because we've experienced it we therefore we therefore know that he is at God's right hand in heaven and this is why there was this great joy which is a a theme of the early church there's so many references to the joy of these early believers here in Acts 5 you've got it in 41 where they depart from the council rejoicing that they're counted worthy to suffer shame for his, his name uh, chapter 
Okay, let's just go back to chapter 3, verse 8. The healed man leaped up and, and praised God. He, he joyed before God, and all the people saw him joying before God. Chapter 2, verse 41. They that gladly received the word were baptized. Uh, 46. They did eat their food with gladness of heart. And so it goes on. 8, verse 8, 13, 52, 15, verse 3. It's a real theme of joy. And that joy can only really come from a certainty that we have been forgiven. Otherwise, there would not be any real basis for joy. And so we, we come here to the bread and wine to see all this made real. To take the symbols of this new covenant the cup of the New Testament or new covenant in his blood which has been made with us this is our way to forgiveness this is our way to salvation and we really have been forgiven we have been saved and that's why we know or we should know, we should be convicted that he therefore did die, did resurrect and was exalted Peter had not seen the exaltation had not seen the uh, the ascent of Jesus to heaven, he didn't know Jesus was at God's right hand from personally having seen it, but he was a witness of it. And so can we be, not only of that, but also of his death and resurrection.